I know that this morning I have been distracted. I was even pre-service by various things going on, logistical matters and the like. And I have been affected by our time together up to now. I pray the same is true. It's true for you. And the Lord is faithful to always meet us in our distraction and in our need and to remind us of what he has done for us and to remind us of his faithfulness to continue to do for us. And so let's go to him now and ask him to be with us as we look to the Bible together. He is faithful to help us now as we look to his word. Let's pray that he would do his supernatural work. Join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, it is good news that our sufficiency is not found in us. It's only good news, though, because you are faithful in your grace to make us sufficient by your Spirit's work. You have been faithful to make us reconciled and to count us righteous even in your Son. We know that we only bring sin to the table. We only bring weakness. We only bring need. So strength and power and sufficiency and adequacy and righteousness and holiness must come from you. We praise you and thank you that you give of all of those things freely to us, your children. Give to us now from your word. We pray that you would show us rightly who you are, that you would show us ourselves accurately, what we were and what we now are in your son. We pray that we would consider Jesus this morning and see him in your word and be thankful and be stirred in our hearts and minds as we think of what he has done for us. We are not what we once were, only because of your grace. Continue to shape and fashion us into the likeness of Christ, we pray. And we pray for these things to occur now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, consider this scenario. The Smith family adopts a child from a completely different context where there was a completely different set of expectations and a completely different value system. That child is brought into the family. He is given a new name. He's given a new status. And then he is taught how he is to live. He needs that teaching on how he is to live now. Because it's all new to him. He has a new life. He is taught the things that are good for him. And he is taught the things that are not good for him. He is taught, as he's been brought into the Smith family, he is taught how to live like a Smith. Now, this child will inevitably struggle at points to live as he should. But what happens when he messes up and he doesn't act like a smith? Are the adoption papers torn up and thrown away? Well, of course not. Far from it, right? That child is still a smith and always will be. So it is with all of us who come to Christ in faith. By God's grace, through the means of faith in Christ, we are adopted into God's family. We are given a new name. We are given a new status. We are promised an inheritance that will last forever. And we are taught how to live now as children of God. We're taught what's good for us. We're taught what's bad. We are taught what is commensurate with the gospel of Jesus Christ and what is not. And we need that teaching. Because just like for that adopted child, we as adopted children of God have a new life now. Sometimes things will go well. And other times it will be a struggle. But through all of that, our status as adopted children of our Heavenly Father is secure because of Christ. Our adoption papers, to continue to use that analogy, have been signed in the blood of Christ. And God continues to teach us. He continues to discipline us. 
And he does so with patience and steadfast love. So brothers and sisters, let's now look to God's word, to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We will be looking today at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you will be helped by turning in them and being able to follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't sweat that at all. We will get the words to the sermon text up on the screen behind me, and you can follow along that way. So now that you've had just a moment to open your Bibles up or turn them on to Ephesians 4 and verse 17, let's listen now to the Word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. I have five points for our consideration this morning. Five points. And I know that some of you may be thinking that that's an ambitious number because you know me well. We will trust the Lord and trust him that this will be profitable as we look to his word together. Point number one, don't live like you used to live. Point one, don't live like you used to live. We're going to look at verses 17 to 19 together for a moment. Paul says in verse 17, as you put your eyes there, that he is testifying and saying in the Lord to the Ephesian Christians that they must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The way that Paul uses Gentiles in verses 17 to 19, the way he uses that word is to refer to people who have not come to Christ. That's clear. He's referring to people who are outside of the family of God, outside of the church. Now remember, the audience of this letter, the recipients of this letter, they were a Gentile audience. The Ephesians, though, are Gentiles who have come to Christ. And so when Paul writes that the Ephesians are no longer to live as the Gentiles do, he is saying, effectively, don't live how you used to live. It only makes sense, right? This is what the Ephesian believers have been brought out of. Don't live like that anymore. Remember that this word to them is important. This is a piece of them learning what their new life looks like, right? Because these Ephesian believers were living amongst Gentiles. They were living in a Gentile, in a pagan society. They had not grown up with the Torah, with the law of God. They had not grown up in the ways of God as it pertains to interpersonal conduct and ethics, etc. Everything for them is now different than anything that they had known before. The way they should think is different. The way they should view the world is different. The way that they should act and speak and carry themselves is different. All of it completely new. Don't live as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles, put your eyes again on verse 17, Paul says, live in the futility of their minds. And as he makes his way into verse 18, regarding that futility of mind, Paul goes on to say that the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding that they are alienated from the life of God, which is the only true life, by the way. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And that ignorance is because of their hardness of heart. Now, all of that, all of that language, the darkness of the understanding, the alienation from the life of God, ignorance being in us because of our hardness of heart, all of that, is the fallout of original sin. 
So when our first parents transgressed the command of God, broke the covenant that God made with them in the Garden of Eden, the human race was plunged into ruin. We all, as a result of the fall of mankind, we all are naturally by birth ignorant of the life of God. And we are therefore alienated from it. And we are all naturally by birth, hard of heart. The Scripture uses language of our hearts and says that they are like stone. The Scripture also says that we are dead in a spiritual way. And as a result, verse 19, continue to look there at the text. As a result, Paul says, the Gentiles who are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God and ignorant of the life of God because of their hardness of heart, they have become callous. They become insensitive. Well, insensitive to what? Callous to what? Well, with respect to sensuality and impurity and sin of all kinds. They have given themselves up, Paul says, to sensuality and are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The only kind of zeal they have is for evil, not good. All of this, friends, is very Romans chapter 1 sounding language. The Scripture is wonderful for many reasons, but one of the things that I love personally about the Bible, and I know you do too, is how consistent its message is. How we can understand one part of Scripture with another part of Scripture. It's a good thing for us to do. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. As we continue to think about what characterizes fallen man naturally. And again, the words I trust will be on the screen behind me. I'm not turning around to chat. Here we are. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and following. Listen to these words. These are the kind of words that really don't need comment from me. They are heavy and they are pointed. Paul writes, For although they, fallen man, right, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sounds familiar. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's the life verse of the world for millennia. Not just now. It's always been the case. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. There's that word. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die because God's moral law has been written into the world He's made. They not only do these things, but give approval to those who practice them. That, all of that, is what Paul means. Even in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19, when he says that the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding, that they walk in the futility of their minds, that they are alienated from the life of God because of ignorance, that they are hard of heart, that they have become callous and insensitive and are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
Friends, the environment all around the Ephesian believers to whom Paul is writing, the environment also from which they came, was characterized by sin, by sensuality, and by impurity of all kinds. Now, it should be said, you may be thinking this yourself. Well, brother, that's true of all societies from all time. You're right. It is. It was even true of Israel. I mean, read the Old Testament. The difference for Gentiles was that they did not have the oracles of God, to use the language of Romans chapter 3. The Jewish people, the Israelites did, have the oracles of God. The Gentiles did not. They did not have God's moral law written down on tablets of stone and given to them. They did not have the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, cleansings, and the like. They didn't have the civil law that governed the nation of Israel, that, for example, criminalized certain kinds of sexual immorality. No, the Ephesians, the Gentiles, had come from a society in which sexual immorality and other kinds of impurity were not only normal but celebrated. They were seen as good. For many of these Ephesian Christians, in many cases in their former life, sexually immoral behavior was even a part of their religion. And so they needed to be taught. Very explicitly, they needed to be taught how they were to live upon coming to Christ. In Christ, they were to flee from many of the things that used to characterize their lives. Which brings us to point number two. Point number one, don't live like you used to live. Point two, in Christ, put off the old man and put on the new man. In Christ, put off the old man and put on the new man. We're going to look at verses 20 to 24. In verse 20, referring back to what he had written about the Gentiles and what characterizes their lives, Paul says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. He goes on. That's not the way you learned Christ, assuming you were taught the truth, assuming you were taught anything decent, assuming that you have heard rightly about Jesus, assuming you were taught rightly in Him as the truth is in Him, to put off your old self, the old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through wicked desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, that is the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The message, friends, of verses 20 to 24 is this. To give yourselves up to sensuality, to be eager to practice every kind of impurity, and to be callous about all that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you were taught the truth. In Christ, we are to put off that old stuff, the old man. We are to put on, in Christ, the new man. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That is something that God will do by His Holy Spirit, and it's something we pursue. We are to put on the new man. In Christ, we have been raised to walk in newness of life. In Christ, we have been created after the likeness of God, and we will be conformed to the image of Christ. He will do it. And we pursue righteousness and holiness, not sensuality and impurity. All of this, it's huge that we understand this. And the reason that I started this sermon with an illustration about adoption and a new status and a new name and a new identity is because that is at the heart of this text. All of this language about putting off and putting on is language about identity. It's not about like moral platitudes. It is about identity. To put off the old man is Paul's way of saying, you are not who you used to be. Like, objectively so. You aren't who you were. And his language of put on the new man is his way of saying, remember who you are now in Christ. You need to know who you are, and it is who you are. It is your identity that determines your duty. So now we're going to consider 
those two realities more pointedly. That putting off, you're not who you used to be. That putting on, remember who you are. Point three, you are not who you used to be. You are not who you used to be. In Paul's letter to the Romans, again, we're going to refer back to that great letter for a moment. The message of Romans 1 through 5, after the words that we just read a moment ago, Paul begins in Romans chapter 2 to talk about how none of us live up to our own standard, let alone God's. We go around judging other people for not meeting the standards that we have for them. How much more so have we not met God's standard? And Paul reminds us that God is a righteous judge who always rewards good and always punishes evil. He always judges impartially. He rewards those who do good with eternal life. And he punishes those who do evil with judgment, wrath, and condemnation. Paul sets it up for us beautifully in Romans chapter 2 as well, he tells us that it's not just the hearers of the law who we justified in God's sight. It is the doers of the law who will be justified. But there's a huge problem. The huge problem is that there's no human being who's good. Not one. Nobody's righteous. Nobody does good. Nobody seeks after God. No, not one. Which brings us to the latter part of Romans chapter 3 where we're asking, well, Paul, how in the world is anybody ever going to be justified? Which is where Paul writes those beautiful words in Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, right, bear witness to it. It is the righteousness of God that is received by faith for all those who believe in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, nobody's justified. We are justified by Jesus and what He did for us, and we are given the very righteousness of God by faith in Christ. In Romans chapter 4, Paul tells us that God is in the business of justifying the ungodly by faith, by means of a gift. He doesn't justify those who have cleaned themselves up. He doesn't justify those who are better than most. He justifies wicked people by grace. Then in Romans chapter 5, Paul pronounces it. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's ours. The love of God has been poured into our hearts by His Holy Spirit. When we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. How much more so now that we've been reconciled to Him will we be saved by the life of Christ? And then there's that beautiful section on imputation, right? The counting, the crediting of the righteousness and obedience of Christ to sinners. In Adam, we were dead. In Christ, we're alive. In Adam, we fell. In Christ, we're righteous. And the shocking statement, that the law was given to increase sin. What he means by that is that the law was given to show us how wicked we are and to drive us to our only hope, right? which is not in ourselves. The law came in to increase the trespass, but here we go. As sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And you're like, gosh, that's a scandalous statement. So, Paul, by the beginning of Romans chapter 6, says this, paraphrase. I understand, he anticipates a question. I understand that the gospel I have laid out would lead you to ask the question. So we, in light of all that, we can just sin now, right? So you're saying we can just sin because as sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So we should just sin. And here at CBC, I realize that the gospel we preach might lead people to ask that same question. Brother, when you talk about the fact that there is literally nothing left to do in order for me to be saved, when you tell me, when we rejoice in the fact that it's over and redemption is accomplished, salvation is done, Christ is sitting down, and we are safe and secure, and nothing will ever be asked of us that Jesus has not already provided. When you talk like that, are you saying that we should just sin? Because it doesn't matter. I take great comfort 
in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a well-known preacher of the 20th century in England. He said famously that we are not preaching the gospel rightly if it does not open us up to that question. If it doesn't open us up to the attack of antinomianism, lawlessness, we're not preaching the gospel, we're preaching works. All right, so how does Paul respond to that question? He responds to the question, should we sin all the more that grace may abound? His answer, by no means. No way should we sin all the more that grace may abound, all the more. Why? It's very interesting that he does not give law. He doesn't give commands. He doesn't give rules. He doesn't threaten. He says, by no means, because you have been united to Jesus. Why do we not sin? Because we have a new identity now. Because we have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ in His death. This is Romans 6. In Him, we died. Galatians 2.20, in Christ, we died to the law. His death is counted as our death. In Christ, we died to sin. And we have been united to Him, not just in His death, but in His perfect life. His unshakable righteousness. We've been united to Him in that. And we have been united to Him in His triumphant resurrection, which not only secures ours one day, but means for us now that we have been raised to walk in newness of life in the Spirit. This, friends, is what our baptism was about. And in God's remarkable providence, we will witness a baptism today. We didn't plan it. It's just cool how God does things like that. As we're thinking about our union with Jesus and all that that means, we get to observe the sign of that union today. Remember those things that Paul wrote of the Gentiles in Ephesians 4.18? That they're darkened in their understanding? That they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them? All of this because of their hardness of heart? Remember those words. Well, none of those words, none of those things are true of us anymore. It wasn't true of the Ephesian Christians as Paul was writing to them. He's saying don't live like that because that's who you used to be. It's not who you are. Only God can melt hearts of stone and only God can give new hearts and give spiritual life and cause us to be born again. And He has done that for us. Should we just sin then? No. That's who we used to be. But we, quite literally, are not those people anymore. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, this is in part what he means. You aren't what you used to be. We are now in Christ, and we have been set free from the dominion of sin. We have had a heart change, quite literally. We have been given a new one. And we now have become, again, the language of Romans 6 and verse 17, we have now become obedient from the heart. How? Because again, your heart is new. Your heart before didn't want anything to do with obeying God. Your heart now wants to. So don't, Brothers and sisters, don't live like you used to live. Why would you want to? When people ask that question, right, it's kind of like the wrong question. Can we just sin? It's like, well, why would you? You actually can obey now. And you actually want to. You used to be in bondage and now you're free. You have a new life and a new identity. And you want to please God. We obey because we can. Put off the old man. It's not who you are anymore anyway. Point four. Point four is remember who you are. Remember who you are. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle 
tells us that God's power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He tells us that through God's great promises, we have become partakers of the divine nature and have been delivered from the corruption that is in the world because of sin. He tells us, therefore, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. This, Peter says, will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. That's pretty clear. And then, verse 9 of 2 Peter 1, a verse that's often kind of skipped over in this passage. Whoever lacks these things, meaning virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Paraphrase. Whoever lacks these things has forgotten who he is. Whoever lacks these things has forgotten who she is and what Christ has done for her. Brothers and sisters, remember who you are. In the words of Peter, remember that you have been cleansed from your former sins. Now, as Caleb said earlier, we would agree wholeheartedly with him because it's biblical that we are all far worse than we ever imagined. We tend to think of ourselves in a pretty good way. We tend to think highly of ourselves. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But we are all much worse than we imagine. We have all done much worse when it is in our lives or compared to God's law. It's always worse than we think. We tend to always think that, well, well, I haven't done that, and I haven't done that. I'm doing okay. But then God's law and its holiness and righteousness comes in when it's applied rightly to our hearts and minds and reminds us we have not for one second kept the law. Because of our sin and corruption and the depth of it, we carry around shame and guilt. And here's the wonderful news. Remember that you have been cleansed from your former sins means that all of your transgressions, all of your failures, all of your worst thoughts, all of your most wicked desires, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of the condemnation that you before rightly felt, Christ has taken all of it. We don't bear it anymore. And here's the even better part, if it could get better. We will never bear it again. Never. Remember that you've been cleansed. Remember who you are. Remember that you have been given the very righteousness of Christ. Friend, I don't care. I don't know everything that you've done in your life. Some of you I've known for a few years. Some of you for a few weeks. But I can say with confidence, your record and mine is trash. Christ's record is perfect. All of His perfect thoughts, all of His perfect desires, all of His, here we go, perfect feelings about His heavenly Father, all of His perfect works, not a single one of them even slightly tainted with sin. All of that is counted to you and me. Remember that. Remember who you are and then pursue righteousness. Remember who you are and pursue good works. Remember who you are and pursue holiness. Why would we not? I trust this is landing on you as it even is on me. So often when we talk about obedience or holiness, it frankly sounds like a trip to the DMV. Right? It is anything but that. 
it's a good indication that your theology is getting better when imperatives in the Scripture, when words in the Scripture that tell you to pursue good works and holiness and righteousness no longer sound threatening, no longer sound burdensome, but they sound like a joy. Like, the, the response is like, yeah, no kidding, why wouldn't we do that? It's a good indication that we're on the right track. We have a new identity now, and it's not going anywhere. God has given it to us, and he's never going to take it back. And so put on the new man. Point five. Point five is a little bit more like boots on the ground. I've given it the heading, what this means for life together at CBC. What this means for life together at CBC. Before I get any further into this section, I, in talking with the elders on Thursday night in our elders meeting, we all understand that the last year has been hard. It's been really challenging in a lot of ways for all of us. We realize that every good rhythm that most of us have has been absolutely obliterated. And that we are having to kind of relearn how to do normal stuff in every area of life. And that would include life in the church. The way that we were talking about it the other night, it's like we're all experiencing this kind of muscle atrophy because we just haven't used things in a long time. And we know that it's going to be hard for all of us to re-engage into like normal church life. But friends, it's worth it. I mean, in light of even what we've been considering in Ephesians, like last week, for example, in verses 7 to 16 about how the Lord has designed the church, how much we need the church, how much we need each other, it's worth it. It's worth the difficulty in the short term to reestablish good patterns, even with respect to church life. All right, now, the church is an essential piece of this new life that we're considering. Right, you've got a new identity and a new status. You've got a new family now. You've got a new people. It's the church. We have this new life in Christ and the life that we live in Christ, we live together in the church. So what are some implications of our text today for our lives together? In light of this emphasis on identity, putting off the old man, putting on the new, I want to offer three, three significant implications. This is all under point five. For the copious note takers in the room, sub point one. We exhort and correct one another. We exhort and correct one another. So though in Christ we are saints, as we've just been considering, we still have not been fully sanctified yet. We still have a corrupt flesh. We have thereby wicked and selfish desires. And if it were not for the grace of God, we would run headlong into sin and foolishness all the time. So the big question, how is it that God works in us by His grace to keep us from sin? How is it that God works in us by His grace to keep us from foolishness? Well, there are a number of ways that He does so. But one of the most significant ways is God uses our brothers and sisters. I trust many have experienced this. I have. Where brothers and sisters around me have kept me from sin have kept me from foolishness. They've been an instrument of God's grace in my life like that. I trust you have experienced the same. When it comes to not living the way we used to live, friends, we need each other. It won't go well alone. We need our friends, our brothers and sisters in the church to encourage us and exhort us toward godliness. We need our brothers and sisters to remind us that godliness is good. To remind us that godliness is worth it. Because you're going to have times, just like I've had times, where you're not sure that it is. Because your flesh wants that. And then your brother, your sister reminds you, that will wreck your life. Don't go there. It's not who you are. 
We need our brothers and sisters to be able to look at us and tell us when we are being foolish. Tell us when we are being selfish. Tell us when we are being hard-hearted. Tell us when we're being naive. Because we all will have those times. We need to be able to have those kinds of conversations. We need to be able to lovingly communicate such things to others. And we need to humbly be able to receive such correction. So implication one of our text today is we exhort and correct one another in the church. Second implication for life together at CBC. This is long. I'll say it twice. If we have people in our midst who think sin is good and we are, who are encouraging sin or who think sin is no big deal, we greet that with the law and we remind them of who they are. Let me say that again. If we have people in our midst who think that sin is good, who are encouraging sin, or who think sin is no big deal, we greet that with the law, the law of God, and we remind them of who they are. So this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. to Pretty famous chunk of verses for a reason. Turn if you've got your Bibles, and again, we'll get this on the screen, I trust, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This won't be long, but let's consider this together for a moment. The context in Corinth is a church where many of the saints are arrogant regarding immorality. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife sleeping with his stepmother, right? And you, Paul says, are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. A couple of comments here. There's a man who is being sexually immoral in a way that Paul says even pagans know is whack. And you, in the church, rather than grieving this and being like in mourning over this, you see this as some expression of Christian freedom and are arrogant. You ought to be brokenhearted. And you actually ought to practice church discipline on such a person and remove them from among you. But then we go on into 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where you've got believers in the church going to the civil courts, suing each other. Like it's a mess. It's trying to stick it to one another and take advantage of one another. Motivated by selfishness, motivated by greed. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, that is wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know that? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. You have gross immorality in your midst and you're arrogant about it? Paul's response, don't you know God's law? Don't you know God's law? Don't you know what God requires? Don't you know what He has told you is good? Don't you know what He has told you will ruin your life on earth and lead to everlasting condemnation? Don't you know? Don't you know that God is holy? Now, a word here. We talk all the time about the fact that we still sin. And we struggle with sin. And that is absolutely true. There's not a single person in this room who doesn't sin. And we own this reality at the same time. Yes, we still sin. And we sin because we are weak not because we think it's good. We sin because we're weak, not because we think it's good. If you think sin is good, friend, you are tragically wrong. And we talk like that to each other in the church. Brother, if you think that that's good, you are tragically wrong. Sister, you think that's good, don't you know God's law? 
But that's not all Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Let's look now to verse 11. One of the best verses in all of Scripture. And such were some of you. So he just said, all the people who do those deeds will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that statement ought not be qualified. It typically is in our evangelical environment. People will qualify the, you know what, out of the daylights out of 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Well, what he means is that you shouldn't be living a life characterized by such things. Or you shouldn't live a life that has a trajectory of immorality. I would say baloney. He said if you do this, you will die. If you do this, you will go to hell. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were that. You're not that anymore. How? Why? Because of Christ alone. Because of Jesus. You no longer are that. God no longer sees you as that. You were washed and cleansed of your former sins. You have been sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have been declared righteous in the name of our Lord and Savior. Our identity is different now. Our, our status is different now, and so we live differently now. Third implication. For our lives here at CBC, in light of our text today. Also, relatively long, I'll probably say it twice. If we have people who are fighting against sin and are weary from that battle, we seek to comfort them in Christ and encourage them in the fight. If we have people who are fighting against sin and are weary from that battle, and every Christian gets weary from that battle, amen, somebody. We do. Then we seek to comfort one another in Christ and encourage one another in the fight against sin. Remember this, dear saints. Only those who are alive in Christ fight against sin in the first place. If you have ever had a thought that I'm struggling to do the things that I want to do, if you've ever had the thought that I am really struggling to not do things that God says are wrong. I want to obey God, but I'm just not pulling it off. And I'm discouraged and I'm grieved and I'm weary. If you have ever had that thought, don't ever let that lead you to conclude that you might not be in Christ. Only those in Christ fight against sin. Now, you can conceive of a reality where somebody might want to be morally upright because they think it will gain them something in the world. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a person wanting to fight against sin for God's sake. A person not wanting to offend the Lord Jesus who has died for him or her. Only a Christian thinks like that. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that non-Christians still sin, but Christians don't. The difference is that Christians have agreed with God about their sin. And Christians have sided with God against their sin. To the weary saint, in other words, to the weary saint at CBC, we herald from the rooftops the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Like we were considering a minute ago. To that brother or sister who is just absolutely wrecked in his or her conscience. It is confident that he or she will stand before the Lord one day and I just know that Christ is going to tell me that he never knew me. You ever been there? I've been there. To that person, we remind them of the wonderful truths that we have been considering already today that, friend, what you're fearing might be true if any of this depended on you. What you are fearing might be true if even a hint of your own goodness and your own affections factored into this equation. But they don't. Because Christ is enough to save you. Even you. Because Christ is mighty and able to save. His righteousness is perfect. How could you ever need any more? His holiness is perfect. How could you ever need any more? By the way, only God is holy in this universe, so all holiness must come from Him anyway. 
had to be given to you because you're not holy. But Christ is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for His own. In the church, we realize that we sin because we are weak, not because we want to sin. We acknowledge that we desire to do good and don't have the ability to carry it out. We don't do the good that we want. We do the evil that we don't want. We acknowledge with the Apostle Paul that whenever we want to do right, evil seems to lie close at hand. We affirm and agree with the Apostle that we delight in God's law in our inner man. That new man delights in the law of God. But there is another law in our flesh that wages war against our spirit and our mind. And we understand that this is the experience of every member of this church. And so, we are vigilant and compassionate. Those two things can go together. Oftentimes people think that vigilance means that we're exacting and we're hard. We're vigilant and compassionate. We watch over one another attentively and we are patient with one another in Christ. We speak the truth to one another. The truth about what is good for us and the truth about our identity. We collectively together cry out with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we collectively together answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We together say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We together say, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Saints, we aren't who we used to be. We have a new life now. And that's because if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you and praise you for your grace and mercy. For your salvation that you have given freely to us. We thank you that we are not who and what we used to be. We pray that you would remind us this day of our new identity in your son. Remind us this day of our new status as justified and adopted children. And Father, we pray that as we together live this new life, in this new identity, with this new status, that we together would pursue righteousness, godliness, and good works. We pray that we would love each other. And we pray for your help and your grace in it all. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.